you've been uh, with us in this uh, series in Colossians over the past several months, uh, we've been in chapter 2 for several months now, and we see laid out here in chapter 2 the glories of who Jesus Christ is and what Christ has accomplished for all who trust in him. Specifically, you see that in verses 9 through 15. And those verses beginning in in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul had shown uh, Christ's deity and the complete salvation that they had had in Christ, how Christ had saved them. He talked about how Christ had circumcised their hearts and had taken them from being dead in their sins to being made alive through the forgiveness of their sins He had taken the law, which stood opposed to them, out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And God the Father had disarmed their spiritual enemies, the devil and his hosts, by triumphing over them through the cross of Christ, his beloved Son. And then, beginning in verse 16, we began to see some of the conclusions which Paul had drawn from his his Christology, his doctrine of Christ and what Christ had accomplished. And... He is applying it to the situation which was directly relevant to this church there at Colossae because of the false teaching which had been coming their way. And so in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, there was a conclusion which Paul drew concerning the, the Judaizing tendency which was coming their way. He said, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those things were shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. There was no need to return to the shadows, no profit to be found in the shadows, now that the reality toward which those shadows had been pointing had come, namely Christ himself. Then in verses 18 and 19, Paul had shifted slightly to speak of another danger posed by those false teachers. He said, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, or as the ESV had translated it, let no one disqualify you. And in that, the Apostle Paul's concern was that these false teachers were going to play an unscrupulous role in the lives of these who had professed faith in Christ. And so he was concerned that these false teachers were going to move the goalposts, so to speak, and that those who had professed faith in Christ were going to be led astray from the truth so that they would no longer continue in the faith and would be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so Paul was concerned that there were some who were advocating false humility and the worship of angels, possibly seeking to use those angels again, as we we saw a few weeks ago, as, as mediators by which to gain access to God. Paul had said that those who do such things were not holding fast to the head. They weren't holding fast to Jesus. They were letting something get in the way between them and Jesus. And so Paul was worried that these Colossians would follow suit and and step with these false teachers and would not hold fast to the head. And then tonight, finally, we come to this last portion of chapter 2, and we see Paul's warning here against some other aspects of this false teaching. And so let's look at these verses together. Colossians uh, chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 is where we are at this evening. And so Paul writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if 
You are living in the world. Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, as we, as we look at this, we want to notice right from the start Paul's presumption about these believers. He presumes that they belong to Christ, that they have died with Christ, to use that, that scriptural language, and therefore that they have died with him to the elementary principles of the world. Now, we'll talk about the elementary principles of the world here in just a moment. But, again, we need to notice, for starters, how Paul frames his instructions here. He says, if you have died with Christ. And similarly, if you look down below to chapter 3, verse 1, he frames his instruction to them there by saying, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things which are above. And so he assumes that these Christians are united to Christ, that they have been joined with Christ in his death and also joined with Christ in his resurrection. As he had said to these Christians back in chapter 1 of this letter, he said that they had heard and understood the grace of God in truth. They had learned it from this, this man, Epaphras, who had preached the gospel to them. And they had faith in Jesus Christ. They also had love for all of his saints and the report of their faith had even reached the Apostle Paul all the way in Rome. And so, given what Paul knew of Epaphras and of his faithfulness to proclaim the truth of the gospel, given the report that he had heard about these Christians, Paul operates on the supposition that these people are united to Christ by faith. And therefore, being united by Christ with, with Christ by faith, they are joined with him in his death, burial, and Resurrection, And that's the same reality, you may recall, that Paul speaks of elsewhere. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. And being united to Christ by faith, for all of us who are believers in Christ, we are united with him in his death. We have died with him. And that means, if we are true believers, that we have died to our sins. Now, Jesus died for our sins so that all who trust in him can be forgiven. But we also die to our sins, then, in the sense that we put them away from us. We turn from them and walk with God in obedience to him. And we also, in a sense, die to the law, as Paul speaks in Romans 7, 4, where he says, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, obviously our death to the law does not free us from God's moral law in the sense that we can throw it out the window and do whatever we please. Of course not. We can't do that. We must obey God. But in Christ, we do die to the moral law in that we do not seek our justification by it. We do not seek our salvation by it. We do not use it as a means 
by which to gain favor with God. That cannot be. That is only by the grace of God. And we are also freed from the Old Testament ceremonial law in the sense that it is completely taken away from us and the types and the shadows of it are fulfilled in Christ. And I'm inclined to think that it is in this sense that Paul is speaking here in Colossians 2.20 where he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you're using the, uh, the ESV, I'm well aware that it translates it as saying that you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits. It can be translated that way. I, I prefer the, uh, the New American Standards rendering of, of elementary principles, or the King James translated it as the rudiments of the world. And I think that Paul is likely here speaking of Old Covenant Jewish ceremonies. And back when we were uh, looking at uh, Colossians 2.8 a few months ago, uh, we saw this idea of, of the elementary principles before when he warned that they were not to be taken captive according to the elementary principles of the world, but rather according to Christ. And I think that what he's getting at there is that the elementary principles were uh, the, the Old Covenant ceremonies functioning as the, the ABCs, so to speak, of religion in the Old Testament time. And Paul uses similar language to this in Galatians chapter 4 to speak of the Old Covenant Jewish ceremonies when he says, So also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And of course, that was the situation in uh, in Galatia, right? These believers were, were seeking to turn back to the old covenant ceremonies and seek to, to gain the favor of God by means of fulfilling the Old Testament ceremonial law. And I think that there's something at least similar here that Paul is getting at and therefore uses this, this similar language about the, the elementary principles of the world. And I think he's concerned that these Christians would become engrossed with submitting themselves to these regulations, regulations which had passed away. In the Old Covenant time, the the ceremonial law obviously had the authority of God behind it. But now with the, the coming of Christ and the binding obligations of those ceremonies being dropped, those who sought to reinstitute them and to obligate others to follow them were doing so not on God's authority, Even if they claimed to have God's authority, they were actually doing it on their own authority. In other words, what had been the commandment of God now became the commandment of men, if you follow me there. And it may be, in keeping with Jewish practice, that these false teachers who were uh, coming in to Colossae and teaching, that they may have been seeking to not only teach the old covenant ceremonial law, but also to add to it in in pharisaical fashion. And so Paul says to them, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He asks the good question there. If they have died with Christ 
to these things, then why do they act as if they are living in the world? They have died. Why are they acting as if they had not died? For them to submit to rules like these, these old covenant ceremonial laws and the precepts of men which hedge them in, that would be for them to live as if they had not died with Christ to these things. They would be, in effect, disregarding the precious benefits of Christ's death for them. And I think the train of thought is probably similar to that which Paul uses in Galatians 5, where he says to them in Galatians 5, 2, he said, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, if you, if you start adding on these things which Christ has taken away, you completely disavow yourself of the benefit of Christ and the free salvation which is found in him. And so he asks them, why, why are they becoming so scrupulous over these things which are not important? And he highlights the unimportance of these things there in verse 22 by saying, number one, that these things are destined to perish with use. In other words, the food and drink about which they were becoming scrupulous were simply physical things, things that were consumed by the body, things that would perish in the very use of them. These things in themselves could neither make the soul better nor worse. Jesus himself had spoken to this in Matthew 15 when he said, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but that which comes out of the mouth which defiles the man. He said, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes out of the stomach and is eliminated? Perishes with use, right? The theological truth that these things do not matter, food and drink no longer matter, is that which Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, where he says, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, this is a non-issue. The rules which were being imposed on them were rules that didn't matter. It was of no real importance. That's strike number one. These things are destined to perish with use. Strike number two is what he says at the end of verse 22, where he says that this is in accord with the commandments and teachings of men. Again, this had no divine authority. It was simply the commandments of men. And one of the medieval theologians rightly pointed out that unnecessary occupation in human traditions begets ignorance of divine precepts. In other words, if you're too focused on the traditions and precepts of men, you forget about what really matters, namely the commandments of God. And Jesus himself said it in Mark 7, 8. He said, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And so in verse 22, Paul levels two strikes against this false teaching. Now, as we, as we go on and look at that final verse there, verse 23, he does concede that these are matters that have an appearance of wisdom, right? There's, there's something that appears to be wise in having a lot of rules, following a lot of rules, the self-made religion, the self-abasement, the severe treatment of the body does bear on its face, sometimes at least, the appearance of wisdom. On the surface, it might appear to be a wise, pious, and holy practice. And 
Sometimes, indeed, the rigorous precepts of men look wise. Sometimes some of the harsh treatment of the body that we hear about from, say, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox monastic practice sounds like maybe a a helpful antidote toward the lack of discipline and the licentiousness that is so characteristic of our age. And so, for instance, we know that overindulgence in the sense of gluttony and drunkenness are sinful. And so we might think that submitting to some extra-biblical rigorous practice of, of fasting or complete abstinence from some kinds of food maybe is, is helpful and godly. Likewise, if sexual immorality, fornication, adultery, and so forth are evil, and they are, then perhaps the right antidote to that is the encouragement of lifelong celibacy, forswearing marriage altogether. And indeed, some historically in the Christian faith have gone that direction. If you look to the ancient church, it was probably the decadence of the Greco-Roman world that, uh, that pushed some earnest believers toward the conclusion that celibacy must be higher than married life. But we need to understand that our adherence to the commandments of men Do not gain us favor with God. God alone is the one who defines what is good. And he requires of us that we do the good, that we shun the evil on his terms, what he defines as good, what he defines as evil. And therefore, we are not allowed to make up our own rules and impose upon ourselves whatever kinds of self-made religion, self-abasement, and harsh treatment of the body we may please, and then think that because of that, we are pleasing God because we observe the things that we ourselves or others have dreamed up and imposed upon us. The Lutheran theologian in the 16th century, Martin Chemnitz, uh, expressed it, I think, helpfully when he said, God has both affirmatively and negatively revealed his position on this question in the scripture because there have at all times been those who by a show of piety and under a pretext of good intention have departed from the norm of good works, the standard of good works set before us in the word of God, intending to either more or greater works than those which God himself has prescribed. For there is a certain pharisaical pride of the human mind which does not gladly suffer itself to be bound and obligated to the prescription of the divine word, but judges self-elected worship, invented either by themselves or by others to be superior. It is as if a servant would neglect and postpone the commandments of his master and would occupy himself with other labors, chosen and undertaken by him according to his will. And that, I think, is, is the crux of it, is that if we give greater precedence to the commandments of men, either our own or those of others, we're like a servant who, instead of listening to the master and obeying him and following his will for how we are to conduct ourselves and live, we're just making up our own stuff and doing our own stuff and thinking that, hey, we must be pleasing the master, going above and beyond what he would have us do. And Paul grants that there is an appearance of wisdom in these things. On the surface, 
These extra rules may appear to be pious and holy and may appear to others to be the pathway of piety. But in reality, the food and the drink, which is either according to the rules to be used or not to be used, this is going to perish, and the commandments are only those of men and not of God, and thus there is no profit in them at all. Now, the, the final phrase there of, of verse 23 is, is somewhat difficult to translate and also somewhat difficult to interpret and apply. Literally rendered, it would be something like, not in a certain honor toward the indulging of the flesh. The King James rendering was, was pretty literal in its translation, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, our modern English translations have mostly translated it along similar lines to what you'll find in the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV, and it'll, it'll say something like uh, that these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It'll be something, something along those lines. Now, a number of different possible interpretations as to what Paul is getting at have been proposed for the latter clause of verse 23. I think the uh, kind of the, the general position in modern times seems to be that which would naturally flow from the modern English versions. That, in other words, try as you might with all of your man-made rules and things which you superimpose upon yourselves or others may superimpose upon you, despite all of that, you cannot curb the desires of the flesh. You cannot subdue the flesh despite all the man-made rules. You want to make man-made rules and impose them on yourselves, it's not going to stop the problem that you have with coveting, with greed, with lust, etc. Those things are still going to be there regardless of what you do to yourself, regardless of what rules you seek to follow. Now, historically, it seems that a much more common interpretation of this final phrase is that Paul is here condemning this false teaching because by its intense and restrictive nature, it is not properly honoring to our physical bodies as God has created them. And just to put forward a representative of this view, this is Chrysostom in the ancient church. He commented on verse 23 by saying that God hath given it, that is the body, honor, but they, the false teachers, use it not with honor. They dishonor the flesh, he says, depriving it and stripping it of its liberty, not giving leave to rule with its will. God has honored the flesh. In other words, what, uh, what Chrysostom and I would say probably a historical majority of interpreters would say here is that, uh, that what Paul is getting at is that this false teaching is not properly giving due honor to our physical bodies as, as God has created them. Now, in sorting through this, as is often the case, the difficulty is in the details. A big part of one's interpretation is going to depend on whether you view Paul's use of the word flesh here as synonymous with the body, right? If you're looking there at verse 23, he says that these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body... So he mentions the body there just a few words earlier, and the part of the crux is going to be whether you see flesh as equivalent with the body or whether you understand flesh in the sense of the sinful nature, the, the old man, the part of us that is at war with the commandments of God. Now, the word flesh is, in fact, used in both ways in the New Testament. 
Another aspect involved here is going to be how we understand the word that is translated either as indulgence or satisfying. Is this the indulgence of the flesh in the sense of someone running headlong into sinful desires? Or is this perhaps the legitimate satisfying of the physical body in the sense of drinking a cool glass of water on a hot day or eating a good meal after a hard day's work? This word that's translated as satisfying or indulging can be used in in either sense. Now, I think from an exegetical standpoint, I think both views can be defended. And from a practical standpoint, I think both are true. I'm not saying that verse 23 is saying both things, but I am saying that from a practical point of view, both of these things are true. I think it can be truly said that rigorous man-made asceticism is not honoring to the body as God has made it in that it doesn't satisfy with adequate sustenance. It doesn't do justice to the fact of what we find in 1 Timothy 4, that all things created by God are good, and nothing is to be rejected, but is to be received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And I think it's also true to say that rigorous asceticism is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Whatever man-made rules we may impose upon ourselves, that doesn't actually serve to fight against fleshly indulgence. You still have to deal with the greed, the lust, the coveting, etc. that is there in your heart, even when you stack rule upon rule upon yourself. And however you may prefer to take that final phrase of verse 23, I think the overall point of these verses is clear, isn't it? That if you have died with Christ... To the elementary principles of the world, both the Old Testament ceremonial law and along with it, human commands that impose themselves upon us. If we have died with Christ to these things, how can we still submit ourselves to them? We can rightly, therefore, use the words of Galatians 5.1 here, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, here's the thing. Every age has its own characteristic sins and tendencies. And as a general rule, my sense is that the sinful tendencies of our age, both inside the church and outside the church, is that they are more licentious than legalistic, right? I'm sure that there are some pockets, perhaps inside, perhaps outside the church, that struggle with legalism. My sense is that I don't know percentage-wise, but I'll just say majority. The majority, uh, for the majority, that is not the case. For the majority, licentiousness is the case. But, nevertheless, these verses should stand as a warning to us against following the pendulum swing in the opposite direction. In other words, just because the tendency of our age is to fall off the donkey on the licentious side, these verses should remind us that the legalistic side is not okay either. We don't want to fall off on that side either. The right response under any circumstances is to do what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, to fear God and to keep the commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. We have to recognize that those things which are authorized by his word 
And those things alone are the things which are truly good, which are truly right and acceptable and pleasing in his sight. And again, we need to give due attention to the way in which Paul grounds this argument. Right again, verse 20, it's based on the believer's union with Christ. That if we are in Christ, we have died with Christ and therefore are no longer subject to these external authorities, no longer subject to these elementary principles of the world. We have died with Christ to these things, he says. Let's think on that, that Christ died for us so that we might belong to him. Indeed, as as Paul had said earlier in this same letter, back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he said that God had rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We need to remember the, the great transfer that has happened to us if we are Christians, that we've been transferred from one domain, the domain of darkness, the domain of sin, etc., domain of tyranny, to the domain of God's beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, since we have died with Christ, since we've been transferred, since we no longer have to submit to these elemental things because we have died with Christ to them, let's not turn back to these weak and miserable things in such a way that our consciences are bound by them. Because Christ is the one who has bought us. To him we belong. It is Christ who is our Lord, our Master, and our lawgiver. And Christ has accomplished this transfer for us by his death and resurrection. And let's think on that as we come to the Lord's table tonight, that we have been transferred by Christ's death and resurrection from this domain in which we were subject to tyranny and to Satan and to condemnation because of our sins. But now we have been brought out into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We belong to another, to Christ who died and who rose again for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would guard us from legalism. We pray that you would guard us from licentiousness. We pray, Lord, that we would fear you and turn away from evil, that we would know your commandments and keep them, not in our own strength, but by strengthening of your spirit and not in order to justify ourselves for that could never be but we pray that we would do so in order to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice before you holy and pleasing in your sight father we pray now as we prepare to come to the lord's table that we would come in a worthy manner that we would come rejoicing in Christ, rejoicing that his body was given for us, that his blood was shed for us, that we might belong to him, that this was the price which purchased us, which ransomed us and brought us into his kingdom. We pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and wonder as we contemplate again this great reality. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.